You're listening to the Radio Bold News Pod. I'm Mike Sakel, taking you beyond the headlines and introducing you to interesting people and happenings here in Sullivan County, New York, and throughout the Catskills and Hudson Valley. With me today on the Radio Bold News Pod is Marty Rutberg of Rutberg Breslow, Personal Injury Law, and uh, we're here to talk about the uh, unfortunate uh, circumstances of uh, child sexual abuse and, and how it's being dealt with in the, the legal profession. And Marty, a pleasure to have you here. I wanted to start off with just a, an overview of uh, the firm. You've been doing this for quite a number of years. And, uh, and I think the, the important thing is you've also been very much focused, and, and I know it's, it's truly your belief, that personal injury is about your clients. Speak to me a little bit about, I guess, your the firm and and your own personal convictions as to uh, what Rutberg Breslow is all about. Sure. I personally have been practicing, um, entering my 45th year of practice, and my partner, Larry, is also very well experienced. He's somewhere in his 30s of years. This firm that we are now, uh, I opened in uh, 1999, uh, obviously having practiced um, before that, but th- this firm, as, as you see it now, started in 1999. And um, we, do know, we do no other law, as you said, uh, and as the name conveys, other than personal injury law. We only represent injured people and their families um, injured and Unfortunately, it also involves uh, deaths, usually accidental, although as today's subject, child sexual abuse um, tells us, um, there's also elements of intentional conduct that we do sometimes get involved with. Um, We have our office in, um, we call it Monticello, we're in Bridgeville. Um, just downstairs from you in the, in Radio Land, in, in the same building, um, we have our what we call our home office, which is where um, most of the people come to work on a daily basis, and all of the document production is done is in Poughkeepsie. We also have an office in Utica. We cover a lot of ground, uh, mostly this side of New York State. Uh, we go down into New York City and we go up into the Adirondacks. We do occasionally handle cases in other states as uh, visiting attorneys, and um, we're in both the state system and the federal court system. Well, Marty, the reason we got together on this podcast is because your firm has, uh, as of late, been dealing with, uh, unfortunately, a number of uh, sexual abuse cases. And uh, maybe you can lay this out for us a little bit, of course, Many of these cases have developed, as some people might be aware, because the statute of limitations has changed. This was brought about by the state legislature, I believe, a couple of years ago. Uh, and, and it has opened up the door for individuals that might have been affected, certainly as, as children, many a generation or so ago. Uh, and, and it's focused a lot on issues such as clergy abuse, uh, abuse within the scouts, abuse within organizations. So talk to me, first of all, a little bit about the statute of limitations and what the changes have been. All right. Um, Just to start with a couple of um, concepts that were kind of embedded in your question um, that I think is very important is 
that this statute, and by the way, the, the, those folks who've heard me on radio or, or elsewhere at times know that I'm not one to just love every law that a legislature passes. They pass plenty of rotten laws. This is a wonderful law, and to the credit of um, New York State that we have it, because when you say you use the phrase opens the door, and I understand your use of it, Mike, but there's this idea rattling around in people's minds that everybody wants to sue somebody for something, and it's a complete myth. Um, If you've sat where I've sat long enough, you know that most of the time folks come in for good reason. Hopefully, you don't get a lot of repeat customers because hopefully people only have one accident and don't keep having accidents. Uh, So when you say opens the door, what it's doing is it's enabling a significant population numerically, a large number of people who've suffered terrible harm in their lives but were previously unable to get civil redress, compensation for what happened to them because of statutes of limitations. So when you say it opens the door, it enables them now to uh, make a civil claim for the harm that befell them when under the old statutes of limitations, they they couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Um, This arose Um, because over the last, I would say, couple of decades, psychiatric professionals, um, child care professionals, psychologists, a lot of different people in the helping professions became aware that the child sexual abuse problem, unfortunately, in our society and worldwide, is a much bigger problem than most of us Mm -hmm. used to think. And that knowledge eventually found its way into our wonderful political system, which isn't always so wonderful, but in this case resulted in this law being passed. We call it the Child Victims Act. Um, it lives, its, its components occur inside of the civil practice law and rules. That's where we live and where we work. And then there's also criminal um, procedure law um, components to it, again, all affecting statutes of limitations. Um, so the, the, the new law provides that a person who suffered sexual abuse as a child, which means under age 18, can make a legal claim for damages, for money comp- monetary compensation, up until they reach the age of 55. There is also a provision uh, that no matter how old you are, even if you're over 55, as of right now, you you were given a one-year window that you could bring the claim. Now, here we are talking about something that could be called an epidemic, but as a result of the pandemic, when the statute was passed, that original one-year window for anybody of any age was going to expire in, um, it's already ancient history, but I think it was August of last year, 2020. And the governor kept moving a lot of things out legally, a lot of statutes of limitations, including this one. So the the age 55 uh, rule still exists, but no matter what your age, you still have until August 14th of this year to make a legal claim. 
and again, I have to emphasize, we're talking about a civil legal claim. The, the criminal aspect is a completely different piece of work. I was going to say your point well taken. Uh, when I when I spoke about opening the door, I was really referring to giving those victims an opportunity. I wanted uh, let's talk a little bit about sexual abuse because this in particular, and I know you're dealing with a trauma, and that involves many different things. Uh, it, it's a stigma. How does your office deal with individuals that might con- come forward? And really, I guess the other question is, you know, what what do you tell a person who might be listening to this right now, who uh, perhaps has not wanted to come forward? And and maybe you can even speak to some particular cases that you've handled. I would like to, particularly one that, that two that are quite current and within our geographic area. Um, so, first of all, and without criticizing other practitioners or other practices, you, you don't hear us advertising for, the, for this type of case. We don't try to make anybody come forward that already uh, in their own maturation, uh, perhaps their own therapy, doesn't come forward of their own volition. In some of the cases we have, we become aware of victims other than our own clients who have not come forward and we, we don't seek them out and we don't ever try to do anything in our case that will reveal who they are because if they have chosen not to come forward far be it from us to um, bring about exposure so there's a couple of uh, things that come up um, and it's funny it, it it's not always the same some people are very concerned about privacy and they are reassured that with this type of a case we can make an application in the courts that the title of the case be anonymous so that nobody's name appears in the Mm -hmm. caption Mm -hmm. and in that situation also the entire court file is kept by what we call under seal and you know a news reporter who's covering the courts can't just happen upon it only a very limited number of people are able to access it the lawyers involved the judge involved child welfare agencies etc but you know most court files are public you can walk in see what's in there not these if that is desired you also have victims that are at a point again in their lives their maturation their therapy the nuances and details of what type of abuse they underwent and where and how and by who who actually um it's very important to them to have their name attached to it um Mm -hmm. some folks they're done feeling like they did something wrong. They're done carrying what we call shame, but is actually a false shame. Part of the damage done to them was that they were made to feel shame when there was nothing that they had done to be ashamed of. So some people want that um, systemic uh, privacy and some people don't. Sometimes at the end of the case, uh, people who may not have asked for privacy at the beginning still want the settlement to be confidential okay another thing so, so we're sensitive to the individual's desire there the other thing and it's not just us anybody doing this work correctly uh, um is, is is looking out for this i don't want to i never want to make it sound like we're the only game in town um i hope that we're one of the best but um there's a lot of lawyers in the world, in, in New York, 
and many of them uh, do this well. So another thing that we will do, again, this depends on who's walking in. Some people have already had therapy. Some people want to access therapy and don't know where to go. So we maintain uh, a list of um, psychologists and psychiatrists um, with a particular background and focus on sexual abuse, uh, helping sexual abuse victims. And we will connect people to uh, a doctor, to, to, to a therapist, uh, if he or she um, is in need of that. Um, if we feel that somebody's in need of it and doesn't know it, frankly, and I hope this wouldn't turn anybody away, we speak up. Um, you see, the, the damage that sexual abuse victims sustain is, first of all, secret to begin with most of the time. And that secrecy is both part of the damage and it does its own damage. And some victims have what appears to be and is in many ways a, you know, a normative, successful, healthful life. Um, they have grown, they may be married, they may have families. That doesn't mean that they're not still carrying a burden and scars, but they're what we would call functional members of community. They weren't damaged in a way that took them out of, out of, out of the game, so to speak. Other people come to discover that their addictions, their criminal behavior, their own sexual behaviors, um, their ability to relate to friends or to family have been affected in, 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 a, in a very lesser or devastating way. So if someone's coming in and they're in the throes of a life of addiction or a crime um, and they don't seem to be connecting the two, we, we might recommend therapy uh, to, the, to, to those people. So all, all I'm trying to say is that the most important thing we do is size you up and try to give you and get you what you need. Ultimately, of course, all the civil law can usually do is pursue monetary compensation. But mm -hmm. interestingly, in this particular area, I want to flesh this out in another, in another context. What we hope because the cases that work are those involving institutional settings. We do believe that with enough of these cases and enough awareness, institutions, which of course are made up of mostly well-intended, capable and healthy people, the institutions can be affected positively. They can see the potential for prevention. You see, because by its nature, this problem uh, has been addressed only after the damage was done. There was very little done in the way of prevention, but there are things that institutions can do to prevent this, to prevent this stuff. Being proactive uh, and, and making those changes within the institutions. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's right. important. Marty, I wanted to pick yeah. up on, um, kind of pick up on your point about assisting the individual, assisting your client, because trauma is a big part of this. And trauma also affects what's called memory deficit in cases such as these. And of course, 
you need the information to build the proper case. You you need to speak with your client truthfully and openly about each situation. So how much does that, that play a part in, in building a case, making sure that you have the correct information? Is that the point where you send somebody or suggest that somebody perhaps deal with a, a professional, a mental health yeah. professional? It often does play a part. And by virtue of the statute of limitations that we're talking about, where you can bring this case decades after the event, as well as by virtue of the fact that trauma, as you say, negatively impacts memory, people struggle to forget um, and and sometimes succeed. So gathering evidence for these cases is, is a special challenge in itself. And a lot of times, you know, people come in and they know what happened to them and, and they're trying to confront what happened to them, but there are remarkable gaps in, in, in memory um, about how many times, where, when, under what circumstances, what form of sexual abuse. And a lot of times, as the case is, you know, you need a, you, you need a basic threshold of informational quality and quantity to, to open a file. But given that that's present, as the person goes through therapy they often come upon memories that um, they didn't have when they came in. And, you know, I, just because I've been around the block a few times, let, let, let nobody within the sound of our voice, as you say, kid themselves. These aren't made-up memories. The psychologist isn't feeding them any memories. These, these are suppressed, horrible memories that as people mature and confront come back into the con- into their consciousness. Is that is that the challenge from the legal standpoint that that people that might be trying to to defend these institutions or other individuals that they're they're trying to create the assumption that many of these memories aren't real? Well, that's always a challenge, particularly in um, cases involving s- sexual abuse or sexual crimes historically and most unfortunately uh, it's been a place where blaming the victim has uh, long been, let's say, a societal defect here for all of us, and um, thereby a defect. My, I'm, I am assessing it, a defect in the defense of these cases. I think that in the criminal context, that remains true. In the civil context, not so much, because of how we select the cases that we can take. We meaning lawyers handling these cases, not mm-hmm. just Larry and me. The screening process, if, if you want to call it that, is very important. You don't do anybody any good to take a case that they're going to lose. And you don't do your firm any good to take a case. This is very expensive litigation. And by and large, the firm is risking the money and certainly risking the hours. And you don't do anybody a favor by taking a case you can't win or a case that if you win, somebody isn't actually going to get paid for because as we all know, in civil law, it's possible to get a big judgment and never be able to collect. So, and that, and that's part of what I said a few moments ago. I wanted to get around to, to talk to you about. Although the new law gives all victims the opportunity we spoke about to make a civil claim, for a much longer period of time and was passed in recognition that all victims are deserving and, and, and have been wronged. The fact of the matter is that 
on the ground, you know, out here in the fields, as the song goes, or in the vineyards, as we say. Um, the fact is that it works best and, and is having the most important traction in the institutional abuse setting. Uh, you had already mentioned, I think, archdiocese. Everybody's like archdiocese, Boy Scouts, archdiocese, Boy Scouts. But you'll also hear me say, you know, the Boy Scouts have been a wonderful institution. The, the church is the church. And when I talk about those cases, I'm not saying that the church is bad or that Boy Scouts, Boy Scouting is bad. Uh, and that has to be understood. But, but when we talk about institutional settings, it goes way beyond that. Mm -hmm. it, it goes to schools. And one of the, two of the cases, the two cases I'd like to talk about in particular, both occur in schools. Um, it goes to camps of all kinds, schools, daycare centers, what we call trusted institutions, any place that people are caring for and in the company of children. Now, that, you know, the, the, the law speaks to everybody under the age of 18 at the time of the abuse. So we, have, we see cases involving nine-year-olds and seven-year-olds, and we see cases involving 16- and 17-year-olds. In general, by the way, although by no means exclusively, we're not really talking about a violent attack type of things, although they come up. We're talking about the process and end result of something that the doctors call grooming, where there's actually a relationship occurring, albeit a sick one, a depraved one, and an evil one. There's an interaction occurring over a period of time um, in which the victim is, in one way or another, groomed to the point of um, being touched, touching, uh, uh, engaging in whatever uh, the particulars of the case involve. So why institutional? Because here's, here's the problem. If the, if the events that harm you occur in a purely private setting, it's a neighbor down the street. Uh, it's, a, it's someone in your family. I mean, it's just talking about this, you know. Nobody yeah. really wants to talk about this stuff. But, sure. it, it, it's, uh, but it's private. Then there's, and, and again, I don't want to be crass, but the reality is there's no insurance for it. And the person that abused you may be dead, but in any event, almost certainly isn't going to be able to pay any judgment that you might recover against him or her. So in the institutional setting, the question in, a, in, the, in the proper case isn't whether it actually happened. If you've got a problem proving it actually happened, you're kind of in trouble from the get-go. The, the legal question in the institutional setting becomes, did the institution, did its people, the other teachers, the principal, the guy running the, the day camp. Did someone else in a position to say something about it and do something about it know about it or should they have known about it based on what was there to be observed, okay? Mm -hmm. We have a case right now, and when I talk about any cases in this area particularly, but in general, I'm very cautious. I'm not gonna name the school district. I'm not going to name anybody. Um, sure, 
because again, I don't want it to seem that I'm ever trying to draw people out. And well, that's really the bottom line. And I'm also protecting identities. Of course. But but there is a high school within our multi-county. Let's call it our multi-county region. Um, not real far away from where we are, where a teacher was a serial rapist and over what we already know was a 10-year period, at a minimum a 10-year period, groomed and um, had sexual relations with a series of high school girls. Um, so you're talking about 15, 16, 17-year-olds. Uh, oftentimes the grooming began when they were 14 or so, this teacher was having them babysit for him and his wife. This teacher was taking them on trips. He would drive them home, etc. There were a lot of signs that something was wrong. And his last victim before he went to jail, because he was convicted when her parents figured it out and went to the police, mm -hmm. his last victim, at least that we know of, at least before he went to jail, um, came to us. And we found that people within the school district had long before his arrest had their suspicions. And there's notes and memos and statements indicating that for an appreciable period of time, the system, if you will, or the individuals in a position to do better were way more worried about the teachers' rights and what the rules of tenure were and what he might do or claim if they accused him way more worried about him than about m m my young lady who's now, victims. Yeah, yeah. who's now a grown woman and a very lovely one. And um, at one point, it even reaches the point where someone finally does something. What do they do? They give the guy a letter that says, we're aware of this and you need to seek counseling and you're not allowed to be in the company of Mrs. X, Miss X, outside of school. Big deal. This is a guy that's raping this kid over a period of years. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so we have that case and that's in motion now. And it happens to be one of the cases where um, there's no question there were other victims we haven't been reached by anyone else yet. This is certainly eye-opening, and uh, I, but I, it's it's bizarre. I take your point as to holding institutions responsible for their oversight, for their preparation, and and hopefully, I would think there's there's a societal change where many of these institutions that should be responsible for young people would be proactive and make some some changes in their structure to. Uh, to protect them. I mean, do you feel that there, there's been with, with all of this activity now uh, that, that there are some societal institutional changes that are taking place? The answer is yes. To some degree, institutions are responding to what we're all learning about this problem. However, um, the statistics are still frightening. And, you know, statistics are a little bit weird to work with. I don't gather the statistics. I look them up. And they're always lagging behind. But from um, 2005 to 2015, there was there's very little change in frequency. There's something like 800,000 registered sex offenders 
as of 2015. As of right now, in Sullivan County alone, there's approximately 400 registered sex offenders. Wow. I mean, this this is like that's an amazing wacko. figure. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's wacko. Um, by some estimates, there's sixty to eight. Well, it's not an estimate. There are sixty to eighty thousand reports of confirmed child sex abuse a year in the United States. Put that in context: sixteen thousand diagnoses of childhood cancer, and twenty five thousand diagnoses of diabetes. Okay, so this is like. This off, is it. This is its, its own pandemic. Its own. Its own. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Now yeah. you ask about prevention. So here's something that the institution can do, and that mom and dad, when 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 seeking an institution, a day, a day camp, or child care, whatever, right, you can look out for. And if I do this right, it'll make a lot of sense. First of all, um, again, the only way the numbers are going to change is by prevention. So there's a few things the institutions can do. Um, number one, um, they need to understand that children um, who are lacking attention and, and emotional support are often the most readily victimized because these people who I would emphasize usually look like Mr. or Ms. Normal. Forget the myth of the guy hanging around the corner. That's not, that's not the problem, okay? Um, they, so they can understand which children are most at risk. Number two, um, they, they can um, make sure that in the institution there is a rule known and announced because this will also keep abusers from seeking jobs. They're known and announced that no child is ever alone with an adult in a closed space. School, typical, boys' room or girls' room, no child should ever be in there with an adult, one adult. There should be two. Rooms should have windows. Doors should be open. And if the institution offers this as part of its identification and qualification to take care of your child, again, I would say that it's also, to some degree, preventing the bad actors from wanting to be there because part of the whole horrific dynamic, and I'm not a sociologist or a psychologist, is that spe specific settings attract these sick criminal people. You know, that's, that's what happens. Um, if, you, if you're a child abuser, you don't go live by yourself in the top of a mountain. You seek out places where you have access to children, okay? Th there should also be arguably, um, they say, it should be a dischargeable offense on the spot, no questions asked, up front, in the contract, so that nobody can claim anything else. You're discharged if you're found alone with a child in a room, period. So just by changing that aspect, the other rule is that if you work there and you suspect something, you have a strict obligation to report it. And that if it's found out that you knew or should have known and you didn't report it, you'll be fired. Okay? Well, much like that exists in the medical community. It does. Yeah. Where, where individuals, like if you, for example, go into an emergency room and some abuse is suspected or something is suspected, they are obligated to go to the authorities. That's right. That? Yeah. And the, the last piece on that is, 
and this this is a trap that the school district I was talking about fell into, where they, they for some reason they they assumed the posture that they could only dictate the teacher's behavior within school grounds. It's just crazy. They knew that he was taking this girl in his car home, theoretically home, from school. She would be in his car. She would be seen in his car in town, etc. There should be a strict rule, an institutional rule, that if you work here, you don't drive our kids anyplace. Mm-hmm. They don't leave anyplace with you alone. Okay? Because really, okay, and, by, and, and I'm not making any claim that all teachers or all counselors or all anybody are bad. You got to be careful that people misread this stuff. Like, oh, what are you talking about? You know, teachers are good. Yeah, like my son. Okay? <laughs> of yeah. course they're good. But they're not, they're not shelfers and their relationship should be that of a teacher. You know, right. Your right. high school... Yeah. Athletic coach shouldn't be having the girls babysitting, dry, dry, at least not driving them from school to babysit, etc. that type of thing. That's how you affect it institutionally. And the parents, by shopping, if you will, for institutional settings that demonstrate an awareness of the problem. Some of these practices in place as a matter of policy Go look at the classrooms. Are the, do the doors have glass? Can you see into them easily? What is your policy with multiple adults being present with the kids at all times? Ask. Be smart because one thing we know for sure is that nobody can predict in advance who these people are. And that's scary. Yep. And very often they're community leaders. They go to church. They go to synagogue. They look normal. Marty Rutberg, yep. we're, we're running very short on time. This has been a very informative conversation. I'd like to just kind of wrap it up by uh, giving you the opportunity uh, to let people know how they can get in touch with you, if they would like to personally speak with you, speak about this subject or, or any other questions they might have. Um, how does one connect with uh, Rutberg-Breslow Injury Law? going to go really fast because I want to give them some other phone numbers too. So our phone number in Sullivan County is 791-4321. You could also dial 1-800-RUTBERG, R-U-T-B-E-R-G. You can call us in Poughkeepsie at 845-486-0300, wherever Larry and I are, rutbergbreslow.com. Michael, let let me just give out some help helpful contacts. Please. You can look at criminaljustice.newyork.gov for statistics and information and, and, and who the registered sex offenders are living around you. Um, the child abuse hotline in New York is 800-342-3720. If you think something is wrong somewhere, you call there and, and you let them know. Um, if you think that uh, something has occurred or is occurring uh, that's criminal, that's wrong. In each county, your district attorney, your state police, your sheriffs. You can call the local police too, but um, district attorney and state police usually are the ones that end up prosecuting these kinds of cases. They have a different uh, level and na- nature of resource. Mm-hmm. And I just urge everybody um to be vigilant and um 
be kind to one another, and don't hesitate to take action if you think action is warranted. Marty Rutberg, rutbergbreslow.com. Thank you so much for the conversation. Appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. This is Mike Sakel. Thanks for listening to the Radio Bold News Pod. Be back soon with more conversations that you can check out wherever you get your favorite podcasts and always at RadioBold.com.